You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David J. Lynch, global economics correspondent here at The Post. Today I'm joined by Hamont Tanasia, CEO of venture capital firm General Catalyst, an early investor in companies like Snap and Stripe. He's an important voice in the debate over artificial intelligence, and we have a lot to talk about. Hamont Tanasia, welcome to Washington Post Live. Excited to be here, David. Thank you. Uh, I want to start uh, with something very basic. I'm, uh, as you can probably tell, I'm old enough to remember the world uh, before smartphones, uh, the world before the internet, uh, although not the world before electricity. Uh, and I remember looking back, uh, it's, it strikes me that it was just uh, very difficult to fully understand how much life was going to change by virtue of these uh, technologies. So I wonder if you could start by just giving our viewers a sense of how much in their daily lives will be different five years from now, 10 years from now, because of the rise of AI. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, when, you, when you take a step back and think about what the world was like in 2006, before the iPhone, Facebook Connect, Amazon Web Services, all these pieces came together, the social mobile cloud, and you started organizing society on the internet, it was very different from today. You can press a button and food arrives at your door. You can press a button and a car shows up. There's so many things that get done for you that uh, you didn't used to think about. Uh, you don't think about anymore. And those were places where a lot of your cognitive loads were going you know, just 15 years ago. Now, <clears throat> a lot of that magical experience uh, got done simply by creating a better connection through devices, with each other, with the physical assets in the world. We're now in this phase, and I've sort of said this before, that we're actually in this 30-year cycle uh, of digitization of society that we're going through, where it's only going to hyper-accelerate. What AI is enabling is bringing that magic to the absolute next level. Because before, while it could do certain kinds of actions uh, and, and, and sort of uh, pull workflows together, now it can do thinking at a much deeper level as well. And frankly, you know, across uh, all kinds of cognitive skills, uh, whether you're a physician or, uh, or a teacher or what have you. And so the way we think about work itself is going to be fundamentally transformed this next phase, and that's going to be magical. And you've also written, though, uh, in, the, in the pages of the Washington Post uh, sometime last year, that we're at a quote-unquote perilous moment uh, with the AI revolution. What's the peril, and how well are we meeting the challenge? Look, if you think about the last 15 years, and I've talked about this before, somehow the move fast and break things engineering design principle became a societal design principle. And we started doing these tests at the expense of human lives and the impact on them with technology uh, just to make sure our products were getting adopted faster. I think um, uh, what happened last year with ChatGPT hitting the zeitgeist uh, just over a year ago is that that's about to hyper-accelerate. And the concern that uh, I have is that we can let this technology develop in a form, free-form serendipitous way, uh, and it could go down uh, a path where uh, it, it's essentially automating us out of work, work that gives us a lot of purpose, or we can be very intentional about augmenting human potential with AI. So we're at this fork in the road, 
And uh, what we really need is intentionality. And as innovators in the ecosystem, building trust with society and how we're going to move towards that intentional view of the world. And if we don't, then I think uh, the issues we had with social media and the first phase of digitization of society will get way more compounded uh, and lead to many more issues than we've had over the last few years, which has not been insignificant. Uh, and that's what I worry about. I, I, I do worry about uh, sort of letting technology happen to us versus reining it in and human potential. So just how disruptive do you think this will be uh, broad, broad introduction of AI throughout the economy. How disruptive in the labor market, and do we need to rethink uh, the sort of uh, adjustment policies that we've had in place to deal with previous shocks that uh, you know have, have, I think, generally have been regarded as uh, insufficient? So, look, when I think about the adoption of AI, I think in the short term, medium term, long term uh, uh, way. And in the short term, uh, it's it's a, it's gonna create a boon. There's all these new companies that need to get created. We're gonna rethink uh, different workflows and consumer experiences and business applications with, with AI and uh, will create lots of value. In fact, for venture capital industry uh, and the innovation industry, this is an amazing time uh, to be thinking about the next generation of companies. You know, in the in the uh, and and so many AI engineers and prompt engineers uh, and new jobs that need to get created to enable that transition. In the medium term, it's also very exciting because when you think about what AI does, it's an answer to our teacher shortage. It's an answer to our shortage of our radiologists and physicians and nurses and sort of in every every practical industry. Uh, it can give us an ability to augment human potential in how many uh, people we can service as uh, as individuals in those jobs. Long term, it's ambiguous, but it always is. Right? I mean, if you think about it, you could argue on one side, hey, if, if AI manifests itself in its truest form and it can be cognitively and with robotic language models over time, physically superior to what humans can do over time, then there's a case to be made that every job can be deconstructed in those cognitive and physical skills and machines will do it better. But we also know uh, humans are way more um, uh, innovative uh, than that and, and new jobs will emerge. So, so the optimist in me says, um, uh, I think if we are responsible in building trust with the society and how to bring technology in, focus on these short and medium term uh, opportunities with great intentionality and responsibility, I think in the, in the long term, we will find a way to say what's post uh, this world where uh, the uh, artificial intelligence is just part of how we engage uh, in society. Now, there's also, of course, been a lot of discussion about the existential risk uh, that some people see in AI, a threat to uh, human survival, sort of the Terminator style outcome. Um, You've also raised a what I think is a nearer-term threat uh, in some of your writing, which I think is, is fascinating. The idea that AI might call into question the value of democracy itself, uh, that authoritarian regimes uh, equipped with sophisticated AI will simply be better at governing societies, lower crime rates, that sort of thing. Um, how worried are you about that? Do you see any signs yet that that's in the cards? Look, uh, I do worry about that because if you think about what's happening in society today, we are re-globalizing, right? We're actually creating 
economic center around the Western philosophy, largely led by the U.S. And then you have uh, a second center of gravity economically around China. Uh, and and the, the principles of these two societies are fundamentally different. And what um, I think a lot about is that development of uh, AI as a technology is going to be fundamentally different uh, in, in these two regimes. Um, and it's incumbent upon us to make sure businesses that are developing AI in the democratic societies ends up being uh, the market leading businesses. Um, but that's the tall order because when you think about the development of AI, the more centralized you are, the more you have access to uh, different data sources, the faster and stronger your AI is gonna progress. The uh, communist regimes are fundamentally better suited for that uh, and so progress can in some ways be made faster in, in those regimes. We have to counter that. We have to make sure the different democratic nations come together, think about data sharing, think about uh, the sharing of technology in a way that AI as a whole de develops faster in the, in the, you know, I would say Western plus Indian uh, uh, sort of uh, economic regimes. Uh, and can be as, uh, as good or better so that our businesses can, can be globally more competitive. This is what I worry about. Can we actually have a rapid pace of innovation around AI while respecting the principles of democracy, while making sure each and every nation in this regalized world can actually create their own uh, compute capabilities around AI and be self-sufficient? Because this time around, it's not gonna be that United States uh, companies only will dominate uh, in providing AI to uh, society. And so we have to make sure there's this new implementation model where this technology can come to market and be fast and, and give advantage to the Western businesses. Now, you've you've uh, called this a digital cold war, uh, the, the, the race between the US and China. After decades of US and Chinese scientists and technologists working together uh, to uh, invent uh, the next frontier of uh, innovations, they'll now be operating in, in separate orbits. Um, how do you assess the, the current state of play there? Is the U.S. ahead? Is it even possible to, to for some country to, to be judged ahead, broadly speaking, in AI? Or are there a whole suite of technologies and, and uh, areas that you have to advance across? Yeah, look, look, this has been going on uh, for a while. Uh, I would say when uh, President Xi in 2015 started focusing on, uh, you know, bringing self-sufficiency in a lot of critical industries, it sort of started even back then. And obviously, the United States has been countering as well. I think this digital Cold War really got accelerated in the context of the development of AI. And because uh, AI touches everything, I think it's going to impact how we think about defense. It's going to impact how we think about running our core infrastructure, how we run businesses, consumer services, everything. And so, you know, United States has been, and I would argue it still is, uh, ahead in uh, in a lot of ways because a lot of the core IP got developed here. You've got companies like OpenAI and our cloud companies that are, you know, fairly far advanced uh, in adoption of AI. I feel pretty good about that. You know, we've got leadership of companies like NVIDIA from an infrastructure standpoint. However, I mean, China realizes this. Uh, there are uh, tens and tens of AI companies uh, being funded over there uh, to keep pace, and they're they're narrowing the gap around the semiconductor uh, uh, sort of disadvantages as well. So I, I think it's going to become very competitive very fast. 
And once uh, we get there, it's advantage to the more centralized regimes where it's just easier to get access to the data, uh, regardless of you know consumer privacy or you know democratic values that you may want to uphold, and apply model building to that and 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 leap ahead. So. Again, as I said, I think we have advantage for a little bit longer, but we have to really come together uh, as an ecosystem and make sure we're set up to uh, be the accelerants uh, around AI innovation, uh, uh, you know, while upholding our democratic values. Yeah. I'm, I'm struck by uh, your description of, of sort of the inherent advantages of a centralized uh, system, because the, the argument, as you know, traditionally has been that uh, Chinese society is not well organized for innovation because there isn't the same sort of, you know, wild, wild west freedom uh, that we have in Silicon Valley and, and elsewhere in this economy. Uh, and also that just the nature of a top-down uh, regime is, particularly under Xi Jinping, bad news may not travel as quickly as it needs to travel up to the leader. You don't want to be the guy to go tell Xi Jinping that his prized initiative is not delivering. Uh, so isn't it just as likely that the Chinese will be hobbled by their inherent disadvantages as, as advantaged by some of the things you've mentioned? First of all, I hope you're right. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, from a grassroots entrepreneurship uh, to bring innovation to life versus uh, sort of top-down company building the way Chinese government has been driving it in different industries, I think that's probably right. But AI does function differently. I think by centralizing, you will build, uh, uh, you know, more advantageous technologies. So take 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 a, a crime uh, as example, as you were mentioning earlier. If you can have all the surveillance data, regardless of any consumer privacy, and you can feed it into your AI systems, you'll probably build um, a set of uh, monitoring technologies that fight crime better than you would in our democratic system. Well, now think about the businesses that are adopting that technology, they will fundamentally be better advantaged in the products that they're serving versus uh, what might come, you know, get built here in the US or European or Indian markets, uh, for example. So those that's the kind of example of where centralization can be an advantage because centralization is an advantage to AI. Uh, now, we, we can address how we develop AI models in more decentralized ways. That's another place where we have to be thinking about it and address data collaboration so that we can actually be decentralized and still have the data parity to be able to build these models. Uh, but that requires, uh, you know, more collaboration and more philosophical alignment than perhaps where we are with the different countries, all trying to create their own supremacy in, in AI in the Western world. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, in the, in the advanced economies, there's been something of a backlash to varying degrees in varying places against globalization in, in recent years both as a function of uh, dislocations among uh, less skilled, less educated workers, but also the supply chain disruptions of the pandemic, the rising geopolitical risks from the war in Ukraine and now the war in the Middle East. Um, but I gather you're not, a, you're not one who thinks globalization is dead. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you think we're going through a sort of re-globalization. Uh, sketch out for me how you see that evolving uh, and how different that the coming era will be from what we've gone through over the last 25, 30 years? Yeah, look, I think, I think if you think about the last 35 or 40 years, what has happened is for many, many countries, uh, export economy is a driver of their GDP growth. 
And so one of the things about globalization is, you know, there's a lot of folks that say globalization's dead. You know, if you think about the pandemic and the wars, you know, countries are going to want to be self-sufficient and create their own sort of sovereign-based uh, businesses in these areas. But you, but that's not pragmatic uh, entirely. So I think there's this this balance of how do you make sure your economy has enough scale, uh, and and you can you can provide the quality of living for your uh, for your uh, um, a country, and on the other side, how do you make sure you are are resilient as a nation in the critical industries? So what we have been talking about is this whole idea that there's a re-globalization happening. When in certain critical industries, each country is going to want to think about how do we become self-sufficient as much as possible. In other industries, they will continue to say, let's remain uh, uh, sort of behind globalization and taking advantage of uh, global supply chains and cost efficiencies because there's many ways to get to those uh, products uh, for our uh, for our nation. So the um, you know uh, if you think about AI, if you think about you know building vaccines because uh, you know in the next pandemic, not many countries are going to want to rely on U.S. or China or whoever for vaccines for their their people. You know if you think about semiconductors, if you think about energy, uh, you know look at what's going on in Europe around. Uh, due to the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, I think those industries, countries are going to want to see new businesses emerge that give them resiliency. But if you are talking about, you know, basic uh, components or basic clothing that can be made in many different parts, uh, what you'll see is the supply chains reshuffle. So it won't be that all the manufacturing is just in China. You've already seen India becoming a massive hub around manufacturing. Mexico's uh, similarly uh, got a huge opportunity. And so you'll create you'll create this reshuffling of supply chains. We'll still take advantage of globalization in in those commodity industries. Let's turn to uh, government regulation as as we uh, start to consider what government should do to set uh, ground rules and establish guardrails uh, for the development of AI. Uh, looking back at our experience with the internet broadly, with social media in particular, what are the lessons we should take away from those experiences? Yeah, so David, I think I think to me it all starts with establishing trust. What we have seen is with Moore's law and Metcalf's law and how fast innovation is moving, the proverbial Silicon Valley, the technology industry, keeps running way far ahead of uh, DC and the rest of society. It's been very beneficial to us. We, we've created some of the world's largest companies. We've created all this economic opportunity. Uh, U.S. Uh, economic leadership, but also we have risked our democracy. We've created, you know, more more amplification of bias in society and, and all issues that we've gone through with social media. So, to me, when I think about this next phase, uh, um, you know, it's it's less about regulation and how do we regulate tech. To me, it's much more about governance, self-regulation, and reestablishing trust. It's about creating radical collaboration between technology and DC so that we can uphold the spirit of regulation and build companies that have a framework of responsible innovation that they're, they are building with, uh, and, uh, um, you know, are sort of, uh, you know, creating businesses and scaling them in society in a way that's in the long-term interest of society. But if, if self-regulation is, the answer, you're always going to have rogue actors who can see profit in skirting the rules. Uh, we've yeah, tried I, self-regulation with finance 
uh, to some degree, and we ended up with the 2008 crisis. Um, doesn't the government need to really set some some boundaries, legal boundaries that have to be uh, respected? Absolutely, absolutely. So I think I think my my point around self regulation a little bit is it's so early in AI. What you also don't want to do is create bad regulation that again slows down progress, uh, given how critical this technology and the global leadership in this technology is for us. So what I was really saying is it first starts with establishing trust, having a framework of self-regulation. So you've got these guidelines with which you're building these technologies, thinking about uh, the risks that come around this, thinking about transparency and and uh, aligning with the long-term interests of society. I do think you need uh, um, a, a, a some level of regulation. But my hope is that the regulation is not about the development of the uh, technology itself in AI, but it's much more about how it's applied when uh, it touches humans in the different industries. And we have departments set up uh, that think about the role of healthcare services and education and financial services, as you said, in, in different verticals and how they need to interface with society and how they need to be adopted in the way that's good for uh, our stakeholders. And I think making sure that that those frameworks are adopted for these AI first companies as they become sort of more application centric uh, absolutely needs to happen. But I think that's where that regulation should be as opposed to in the development of the technology itself. So I think it's a bit nuanced, uh, but as I said, uh, in order to establish trust between DC and, and, and the technology industry, the technology industry also needs to show that they're being a lot more intentional in the development of this technology and the adoption of the technology and how they're building it. Uh, and, uh, um, uh, as, you know, so that gives us time for the rest of the regulation to take hold uh, at the application layer. And so at this early stage, do you see a jurisdiction that you think has got, the, broadly speaking, the right idea? What, what do you think of the EU's approach so far, for instance? So, so we've been working with folks in the EU, and we've been working in uh, in the uh, in DC as well. Look, I think I think um, everybody's figuring out what to do. There was this initial bias in the EU to um, uh, over uh, regulate quickly, but then the industry there, including uh, some of the folks we work closely with there, uh, you know, pushed back and talked about this whole idea of sort of more self-regulation and and working closely. To think about uh, the way the AI should, stuff should be developed and slow down. I think in the US, uh, there were similar pressures. When you think about the executive order or you think about the responsible AI pledge that venture capital firms and startups uh, uh, issued in collaboration with the Commerce Department, those are all sort of ways to say, let's start moving intentionally uh, and let's get smarter about how to think about regulation and not jump to it. Because if we, if we regulate too fast, uh, an industry that's changing, and even today, a year from, you know, chat GPT hitting the zeitgeist, we know so much more, and we're going to know so much more in the next year or two that uh, you don't want to slow down that progress. So I think, I think it's a balance of, um, uh, you know, not regulating too fast, not over-regulating, regulating at the right layers of overall sort of innovation stack, if you will. And uh, we got to let that come to us. And, and the only way uh, we can do that while running fast at this is just having that radical collaboration between technology and and, and the policymakers, uh, so that we're we're learning and bringing everybody along, and uh, uh, you know being careful in the application in society. 
I want to go back for a moment to the technology contest with China and ask you what you make of the Biden administration's approach to date. Uh, the president has tried to cut China off from the most advanced semiconductors, for instance, and the equipment needed to make them. Uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has spoken of a, a high fence and a small garden uh, approach. What do you make of the administration's uh, handling of these questions? Yeah, look, I, 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 I'm a, I believe that these are going to be short-term uh, ways of slowing down China. I think there's a lot of talent there. They are developing uh, the uh, you know five, eight nanometer technologies, just like they're not that far behind. Uh, and so I think it's a way to sort of slow it down in 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 uh, uh, in the short term. But again, I think if the goal is global competitiveness, that's not going to be enough because China is going to find a way to create uh, their own supply chains. They've been at it for a while. They've got all the resources to be able to do this. They, we, we have to make sure our ecosystem continues to lead the way it always has. And we work on making sure that ecosystem, big companies and small companies, so there's a level playing field, are all able to run as fast as possible you know, with, again, this sort of societal responsibility in mind so that we can uphold our democratic principles in the way we build this technology. But we have to accelerate. We have to move fast in, in letting our ecosystem be uh, what it always does. It does build global companies uh, as market leaders. Uh, so taking care of business internally is going to be the way to win the long term. These are just short term gaps. Now, you, you've talked to this idea of a shared responsibility between the public and private sectors, and you were an important uh, force behind the development of, of the res uh, responsible AI initiative, bringing together the Commerce Department and a consortium of uh, VC firms. Tell me a little bit about what that entails and what the effort was like to herd all those cats in the same direction. Yeah, it, uh, I was pleasantly surprised. I think there's a lot of uh, firms, investment firms, as well as uh, technology founders that recognize uh, that in order to really win in the long term, we have to earn this trust and create this governance framework with which we build companies in the ecosystem so that the regulators have more trust with us and have patience in figuring out how to regulate versus regulating out of fear. Uh, and, and I would say, you know, not everybody thinks that is the way to go. Some, some folks in Silicon Valley would say, leave us alone, let us run as fast as possible uh, because we want to get to, uh, you know, market dominance. You know, this group that came together uh, sort of took the other position, which is in order to really um, uh, win in the long term and run really fast, we need to come together, think about standards, build trust and collaborate between technology and policy uh, so that the companies that get built uh, that are AI first in all these industries can can truly be market leaders. I think everybody wants the same thing. It's a matter of sort of what's the ideology. And, you know, there's that old saying that if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And uh, this group is very much in that camp. And I think there's more and more companies and investment firms that are signing on to this philosophy. And I think the more that happens, the more we collaborate with uh, DC, uh, the, the more we're going to create an environment that has a level playing field for startups, that uh, enables the adoption of open source technologies carefully in the industry, moves it, uh, the regulation to the application layer, and, and frankly, uh, creates companies that are responsible because that's ultimately what it takes to be market leaders and compound in society for a long time. Now, in the 30 seconds or so that we have left, I just want to ask you one question about money. 
uh, out in Silicon Valley today, you know, fortunes are going to be made off of AI, uh, obviously. Is, the, is there a shortage of investable capital in Silicon Valley or a shortage of good ideas to throw it at? Silicon Valley has lots of capital. I think, I think uh, there's lots of good ideas and there's lots of capital. Uh, I really do believe that. I actually, in some ways, think this is the most exciting time uh, for entrepreneurs to be building companies because, um, you know, you've got the AI cycle, you've got the whole, you know, global resilience and reglobalization trends that we talked about. Uh, and, uh, you know, that touches all, all the industries. Uh, and so, um, and the investors see that. So the capital is mobilizing. It was, it was tough for a couple of years because of the market corrections uh, uh, that happened, but, I think there is a real euphoria around what's possible uh, with AI, and uh, it's this new cycle for the next 15 years that, to me, has clearly started, uh, uh, you know, over the last year or so. Great. Well, listen, this was this was a great conversation, and, and uh, we could probably go uh, all afternoon, uh, but uh, we are unfortunately out of time. Uh, hey, Montanasia, thanks uh, thanks again very much for joining us today on Washington Post Live. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.